0: You and I have a great heritage. We have, in, we have inherited from Jesus the gift of sonship, which brings us out of the, that prison of sin where Adam uh, and his descendants have plunged the entire race and elevates and brings us back to the intention God originally had for us, and that is to be to the praise of his glory. We were designed to praise God. And this whole series is designed to encourage you to make praise, not just part of your life, but make praising God your lifestyle. Build your whole life. I really can't think of anything, I was going to say too many things, but I can't think of anything that you can't do praising the Lord and and be better off bringing God into every area of your life. So we were born to praise Him. This morning I have a special message I want to share with you. It's one dear to my heart. It's a story called the Tabernacle of David. It is the story of how we arrived at the way we worship today. Have you ever wondered why do we worship the way we do? Why do we have the elements of worship where we gather together in some facility, some place, we come together together, and it doesn't matter how we arrange the seating or standing or whatever, but we are together as the body of Christ. And then we get musical and we sing and uh, we praise and we clap and we shout. And You know, different churches have different levels, but some just go all in yeah. and they do everything that Psalms yeah. talks yeah. about doing. Yeah. So we have this praise yeah. environment and then we, we share the word in some form. And how did we come up with this formula? Who said this is what church is supposed to be? Well, there is a pattern. This pattern that we are operating in today really has come to us from God, and you're going to learn this morning of how we arrived at this form of worship and why it's so important. Well, at some point in history, God's preferred order of worship transitioned from priests practicing symbolic rituals through the tabernacle of Moses into his people directly giving him praise. And this story is one that every Christian should understand. How it came about, when it happened, and how this transition took place. Let me start with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of worship in the Old Testament. It represented God's holy presence. And it was isolated deep within the confines of Moses' tabernacle, hidden behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter once a year After going through special conditioning, and ritualistic cleansing, once a year, the high priests, no one else ever saw the Ark, much less touched it. Until one day, after many years had gone by, King Saul foolishly decides that he's going to go into the Most Holy, grab the Ark, and take it out to the battlefield against the Philistines, and he kind of used it like a lucky charm. Out on the battlefield, the only thing is is that when he did that, the Philistines prevailed. Israel was defeated, and the Philistines stole the ark. And so the Philistines had the ark for a while, and they took it from city to city. And every city they took it to, their idol gods would crumble and fall down. So the Philistines became scared to death of the ark, and they, they eventually put it on a cart with an oxen without, with no driver and aimed it in the direction of Israel, had said, and they loaded the cart with gold and offerings and an appeasement to God. And they sent the cart off, and the cart wandered off into Israel. And where the cart stopped in a farmer's field, that's where they left the ark for 20 years. The ark sat there in that field for the next 20 years during King Saul's reign, and it was ignored and unattended. Saul was a man that was filled with demons and conflicted. And uh, under his regime, there was no use for the ark. They still had the tabernacle on Mount Gibeon, but it was empty, no Shekinah glory, no ark, no presence of God. Until one day after Saul dies, David, King David, and you're going to learn a little something about King David you might not know this morning. David becomes king of Israel through a series of events. God raises him up, but when God raises King David up, David brings his intense love for God and his life of praise, unfettered, unrestricted, gregarious, out in the open, shouting, clapping, dancing praise, right in to the heart of Israel. He takes praise to the throne of Israel. Can you say amen? Amen. So David brings his relationship with God to the throne of Israel. Now David had discovered the great joy of praising God and fellowshipping with God. And so David decides we need to get the ark and we need to get it back in place because the ark represents God's presence. The Shekinah glory is on the ark and David wants the presence of God. David wants to be near God. He wants God around him all the time. He never wants to be away from him. David's not the least bit interested in going to church once a week. David, you'll find out, in his mind, church is 24-7. And whether you are cooking food, on a vacation, or fighting a war against the Philistines, you're praising God all the time. You're never out of his presence. So David decides... I'm going to get the ark and I'm going to restore it. But guess what? David decides to not take the ark back to the tabernacle, which is on Mount Gibeon, about nine miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. Instead, David has just conquered this hill, Mount Zion. It's actually a series of about seven hills. And he's kicked the Jebusites off of that hill. That hill has a great history in and of itself. the the hill of Jebus or Mount Zion. And it's been called different things throughout history. At one point, it was called Mount Moriah because it's where Abraham took his son Isaac up to sacrifice him before God. That mountain has a great history. And David chose that mountain, Mount Zion, as his home. And so he kicks the Jebusites off Mount Zion and he makes his house up there. And David decides, I'm going to I'm gonna take the ark and I'm gonna put it in my backyard. Because <laughs> I want to go out worship God every day. I want there to be, and he had this vision of music and praise. Glenn, imagine a song, a new, you know, he wrote 150 Psalms. He probably wrote more than that, but imagine a song every two or three days. Hallelujah. Amen. You would need it because they praise God continually. So he decides, I'm going to pitch a tent. And it was probably like an open air tent. He pitches a tent somewhere near his house up there on Mount Zion. And he says, We're going to put the ark up there. Now, please remember that this is the same ark that nobody could touch. And only the high priest once a year could go in. And when he went into the ark, he went in backwards. When he was ministering before the Lord, he couldn't even look at the ark. Forget touching it. David says, we're going to throw it up on a cart. And we're going to dance and praise God. we're going to bring it up. We're going to put it in the backyard. And people are going to get around it. And we're going to dance and praise the Lord and sing and praise God. we're just going to have an awesome time. I imagine some of the older traditionalists must have thought, this is the end. This is apocalypse. This is... Great lightning is going to fall. They, they, they saw God send lightning down when, when some, some young foolish boys tried to offer sacrifices the wrong way. And here David, he's going to grab the ark and he's going to put it up there. So what I'm going to read you out of Second Chronicles is an account of the day that David got the ark in place, put it under the tent, He's gotten all the Levites together. He's given them all jobs to sing, to praise mu- with musical instruments, and to worship. And he dedicates the ark, and he dedicates this entirely new form of worship. And it has been, it's come to have been known as the tabernacle of David. And so this account is in 1 Chronicles 16. I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 12. Then I'll read um, 27 through 29, and then 31 through 36. And just follow this along. Notice what the account says. They brought the ark of God, and they placed it inside the special tent uh, David had prepared for it. And they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord, and he gave to every man and every woman in all of Israel a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Every single one got some food to celebrate with. David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the Ark of the Lord. Nobody worshiped before the Ark of the Lord. Remember, high priest once year backed in to the ark. But he said, I'm appointing these Levites to lead worship before the ark of the Lord and to invoke the Lord's blessing, to give thanks and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. Second to him was Zechariah, followed by, and then there's a long name of names we can't even pronounce. They played the harps and lyres. The priests Benaniah and Jehaziel played the trumpets regularly before the ark of God's covenant. In other words, 24-7, they're blowing trumpets. You had to like the sound of a trumpet. Just saying. (laughs) Because if you didn't like the sound of a trumpet, you would hate worship because it just never stopped. On that day, David gave Asaph and his fellow Levites this song of thanksgiving unto the Lord. And he hands them this song that he has written. And it's a long song. I'm only going to read a section of it. But this was an idea of what they sang before the ark unto the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him, yes, sing his praise. Notice he had to say yes because the people must have been thinking, we've never sing to the Lord before the ark. David says, sing before him, yes, sing praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exalt in his holy name. Rejoice, you who worship the Lord. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Continually seek him. Remember the wonders that he has performed, his miracles and the rulings that he has given. Honor and majesty surround him, strength and joy fill his dwelling. Now listen, O nations of the world. Now hold on. I think this is the first time a prophet or anybody has spoken to Israel and indicated that God was interested in anybody outside of the family of Abraham. Listen to what David says as he's talking about praising God. Honor and majesty surround him, strength and joy fill his dwelling. O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offerings and come into his presence. He's calling Gentiles into the presence of God. Worship the Lord. In the beauty of holiness, remember the message a couple of weeks ago, the beauty of separation unto the Lord. Let the heavens be glad. Now he's he's done prophesying to all the people on the planet. He's now prophesying to nature and to the universe. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Tell all nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea and everything in it shout His praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest rustle with praise. For the Lord is coming to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations, so we can thank Your holy name and rejoice and praise You. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people shouted, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. David must have been up all night writing that song because the prophetic anointing opened that man up and he saw the eternal purpose of God puts the whole thing into a song and says, now 24-7 I want all of Israel to sing, to dance, to shout, and to rejoice in the presence of God. This is what God wants. You. Have- <laughs> Somebody's just waiting for an invitation. Hallelujah. For the next 37 years, the greatest spiritual phenomenon during Israel's history under the law takes place as grace reigns through David's church of praise. It was amazing. It was like an island in the midst of a sea. It was like the eye of a hurricane in the midst of a storm. Here's the law of Moses wreaking condemnation and death upon Israel. And in the middle of it, up pops David, praising, dancing, celebrating, rejoicing, and inviting Gentiles. To praise the Lord, indeed, let the grass praise God. Let the stars praise God. He's Lord from everlasting to everlasting. This man sees something. This man understands that he has he has tapped into something. Hallelujah. And he's dragging the whole nation up to Zion to have a whole new kind of church. Can you say amen? It's absolutely amazing that God not only permits it, he blesses it. (laughs) David's love and praise for God has enabled him to see God's original purpose and plan and to tap into God's grace. And David's heart of praise is now driving this entire phenomenon. This golden age lasts for about 37 years. And so David, by praising God, with his eyes on God's goodness. Somehow David has figured out from his youth, and here's where I want to share a little background about David that'll give you some understanding and maybe encourage somebody today. But by praising God with a, with a revelation of God's goodness and His grace and His mercy, there was no revelation of God's mercy and grace. God was an austere judge, judge, and we were all sinners, and the tabernacle spoke of a forgiveness that was impossible to maintain and a process of redemption that was impossible to maintain. Every year they would renew it, but every year they were back again, dirty and broken in sin. David has seen something in his revelation of God's goodness, and he discovers God's love and his mercy, and it has caused David to transcend his own personal load of condemnation and guilt. You think, what was David? What did David have to be condemned about? There is an old Jewish tradition, and we don't talk about it much, but it is the belief that David's mother conceived him in adultery and that David was actually illegitimate. And that Jesse was not his biological father. And theologians have gone back into the scriptures. And they've looked at things like Psalm 51 in verse 5 where David said, Behold, now David has, has sealed himself in, in before the, the presence of God, in before the ark. And he's weeping and crying. He's on the floor for seven days fasting and praying because he's just been caught having had adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband to cover it up. How devastated he is that this has been publicly revealed and he is just falling to pieces. And he writes Psalm 51 as he is in there, those seven days, pouring his heart out to God. And in the middle, at some point of those seven days, David says, look, behold, I was brought forth in a state of iniquity. My mother was sinful who conceived me, and I too am sinful. People have argued that David wasn't just saying that all people are born in sin, although that's true. However, the reality is that the Bible says the marriage bed is undefiled. So why is David saying that in an act of iniquity, his mother conceived him? It is absolutely contradictory to Scripture to say that if she had slept with her husband Jesse and conceived David, that it was an act of sin that brought him forth. And theologians also look at the day that Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint a king. And God had said to Samuel, the next king is in the house of Jesse. And David's got, what, seven, six or seven brothers? And Samuel, the prophet, now everybody feared and trembled before Samuel. They didn't just respect him. They were terrified of the prophet of God. Let me tell you, if he asked you to do something, he asked you to jump. You said, how high? (laughs) So he says, as he enters Jesse's household... He says, get all your sons and line them up, because I have to anoint a new king. They all show up except for David. Now, people have tried to explain it by saying, well, David was the youngest, so they didn't bring him. That doesn't fit either. They were terrified of the prophet of God, and if he said, bring all the sons, they would have brought him if they would considered David a legitimate son. Then in Psalm 69, there's references, and there's many references like this, but in Psalm 69, David's talking, and it sounds like crazy talking. We just simply say, well, he was prophesying about Jesus, Jesus' family rejecting him and everything, but David says things in Psalm 69 and in other places where he says, my brothers hated me. I was despised in my own family. I was rejected, and... Um, All of these different references about growing up as an outcast and a reject in his household. Why was David shoved out into the dangerous wilderness alone as a boy to watch the sheep in a place that was obviously filled with bears and with lions? Jesse was one of the most wealthy, powerful men in Israel. Surely he had servants that could have gone with his son to stand guard and protect. But no, David was left out there alone. David was out there in those hills alone, tending God's sheep, living a life of an outcast, a reject. As an illegitimate boy, David was not even allowed to go into the temple or into the tabernacle at the time. He would not have even been permitted to enter into the system of the, of the law of Moses and the tabernacle of, of Moses. So David could only hear about the Ark of the Covenant and learn about these things. So it was not just that David was shunned by his family. He was an outcast in the social caste system of Israel being illegitimate. If the story's true, I just present it to you for your consideration, but I think it makes a pretty strong case for explaining a lot of things that David said. It also explains why David is a type of Christ whose own earthly dad was going to divorce his wife Mary because he he figured she had committed adultery. And the angel had to intervene and say she hasn't committed adultery. She has conceived through the Holy Spirit. But there was that stigma over Jesus. And Jesus was turned against by his brothers and those of his own household. We see there is a similarity. Jesus also was rejected. Jesus also was considered illegitimate by the entire religious community. And so I put this before you because I want you to understand the man that came up with the tabernacle of praise or the tabernacle of David. He was a man who discovered out of his pain, out of his feelings of illegitimacy, out of his rejection, out of his life of condemnation, he discovered that there's one place where he can be accepted, and it's in the throne room of God. He discovered that God is merciful. He discovered that praising God made a chapel out there on the green grassy hills of Judah he discovered that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. David, as a broken and rejected man, despised by men, he discovered that he could lift and hold up his head because the Lord was the glory and the lifter of his head. So when God went to look for a new king, he said, I tried one that the people vote for once. And we see where that got us. But I know where I can find a lad whose heart is after me. All these other people are struggling competing with one another to be accepted in the religious process of the law. But I know a kid who was rejected from the very beginning. He's not bound up in all that legalism and law. He doesn't even have anything to do with it because he's a reject. But he knows me and he loves me and I love him. Hallelujah. Amen. And God went and got David. Hallelujah. So, David has a revelation that God's a family man. It's appropriate that this is Father's Day. Because the Lord Jesus is the one from whom all families in heaven and earth are named, the Bible says. So now that praise has filled David with the family spirit of God, he wants to drag all of Israel into the family. One thing about praisers, they don't like to be alone. They don't mind being alone with God, but they want everybody to get in on yeah. it. The love of God just, yes. Yes. and they just want to bring up, they don't want to go off and be by the isolated. And I think David had a special place in his heart for people that were rejected. Yeah. You look at some of the men he picked for generals. Uh, these were not the most clean and upright guys, but David saw their hearts yeah. and he picked them. Hallelujah. David understood that God knows how to use rejects. Can you say amen? amen? Those that people have overlooked, those that are condemned in their own mind, those that don't measure up. Yes, amen. Aubrey was sharing those that awesome truth about Father's Day. I, I thought maybe of, of some of the moms sitting out there or some of the some of the sons and daughters who have grown up and said, "Yeah, my dad was a real was a real piece of work. Yeah, my dad was awful, and he was terrible. And uh, the stigmatism that that can leave you with. That the, you, you walk sometimes, all the days of your life, there's people that walk underneath that, that feeling that because I don't come from a pedigree, because I didn't have that dad figure, that somehow imposes upon me A lifelong stigma, a lifelong prophetic forecast of what I am. I can never really break through that ceiling. But God knows how to find people like that. God knows how to reach into them and say, don't worry. I am coming to redeem the lost. I'm coming to heal the broken and to lift up the hands that hang down and to lift up the face that is broken in pain and bring joy to those that are in heaviness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. David has that praise thing going on in him. He understands the love of God. Naturally, it was someone like David who God could give the vision for saving Gentiles in the whole world. I mean, the Jews thought, we got God. He's our God. They got their God. Those bunch of uncircumcised Philistines, those bunch of whatever Egyptians, those bunch of Hittites and Amorites and transvestites and all the rest of them. All the mites. There's all the mites. And, you know, we, we, today we make a big deal about racism and, and, and all this stuff. I tell you what, this is very much this whole thing we're going through today. The last few minutes of the human race, we have come to this place where we're at today because the whole entire 6,000 years of human history, racism has ruled this planet. Ruled this planet. There's not a place on the face of the earth, not a nation, not a continent, not a people that have not been racist towards one another. The whole race of the fallen sons of men and women have operated in competition against each other throughout history. This is a new phenomenon, this, and this kumbaya spirit. Let's get together. Why? David had that revelation Under God, we are all going to be equal. We're all going to worship the Lord. We're all going to praise the Lord together. We're going to love each other with an equal love because His love makes us all equal. Hallelujah. No wonder God chose a man with a background like David because that was a man that could understand what Jesus was going to do. Can you say praise the Lord? Now you understand why David wrote things like I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Because in his ears were the constant shouts and condemnation and rejection. He drowned it out by praising God. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul, my soul, not what they put on me. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. So let the humble, let the broken, let the rejected, let the condemned yes. hear me praise the Lord and be glad. Yes. Oh, now listen to him, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Hallelujah. There was never a place in the tabernacle of Moses where there was that kind of spirit. Let us exalt the Lord together. Hallelujah. You can see that that David had that, that 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 spirit of the New Testament. You are the light of the world. Go out into all the world. Hallelujah. Fascinating. For only 37 brief years, the tabernacle of David existed during that strange and wonderful period. It was like a, a hole opened up in the dark cloud of the law for a 37-year period. And light and grace flowed between heaven and earth over Israel. And during that time, just nine miles outside of Mount Zion, where the ark was, stood the tabernacle of Moses, and they were still doing daily sacrifices. They were still having church that old way, and you know what, that was appropriate, that was good. You see, the tabernacle was based on learning through ritual and symbolism, and that is important, we should learn about God. The tabernacle taught through visual symbolism and ritual about the plan of redemption, but I'm sure that nobody that went through those rituals put it all together and understood what it was, they just kind of went through those things It got vague, general concepts and ideas. But the message of grace and mercy was not coming through the tabernacle of Moses. So look at this weird setup. On Mount Gibeon is the tabernacle that's instructing about God's plan of redemption. However, nine miles away on Mount Zion in David's backyard, they're partying. And there's the sound of singing 24-7. They did not turn the lights out. And they didn't stop the singing. Have you ever read in the Psalms, praise the Lord in his sanctuary, you that stand by night in the house of the Lord and praise him? The servants that stand by night in the house of God, they praised God 24-7. So you see this tremendous contrast. And I think there's a simple message in that, that strange arrangement that God allowed to go on and that that message is this that god god used that strangeness that strange arrangement to teach us that it's not enough to learn about god you need to experience him you need to experience him god wants you to experience him for yourself and that's what david was doing through praise And it was a prophetic forecast of what's to come. Now, after the death of uh, David, um, they built the Temple of Solomon and everything assimilated back into the Tabernacle of Moses format. The Ark was put in the Temple. There was a Holy of Holies and they went back under that system and the hole closed up and it was dark until the 15th chapter of the Book of Acts, David's tabernacle emerges again. And let me tell you quickly what that story was. During David's time and after David's time, some strange and peculiar prophecies begin to show up in the mouths of God's prophets. One of them was the prophet Amos, who in Amos chapter 9, I think verse 11 gives a prophetic word about the restoration of Israel because Israel had been captured by their enemies and and, um, they were looking for a time of restoration. And Amos says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and I will close the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, says the Lord that does this, this saving of the Gentiles. So some weird prophecies start showing up, and, and the prophets are starting to say, when God restores things, it's not the, not the tabernacle of Moses, but it's going to be the tabernacle of David that God restores, so that the heathen which belong to God may come in and know him. In Acts chapter 15, the early church leaders, the apostles are gathering and they have this great big council and they are trying to decide what form does God want the New Testament church to take? How does he want our worship? How are we to facilitate our relationship with God? And there was a very strong advocacy going on for continuing the practice of the law of Moses, continuing the sacrifices, the temple life, and all of that other stuff. These were all Jewish guys that had grown up under the law of Moses. And so they're arguing that these new Gentile converts that Paul has gotten, they need to be brought in, circumcised, and they need to be taught the Jewish rites. And church needs to be instructional, instructional. Now there's nothing wrong with instruction. Can you say amen? Amen. But in Acts chapter 15, they're having this debate and all of a sudden James, who's the brother of Jesus, who eventually comes around and gets saved, James stands up and he gets out Amos and he quotes Amos 9, 11 and 12. And he says, brethren, see here, God said that he wants to restore not the tabernacle of Moses, but the tabernacle of David so that all the Gentiles who you see are coming in, Paul's going out and getting them, and God's putting up with it and saving them. I'm being facetious, but if you you understand, that must have been the attitude that these Jewish Christians had, he's putting up with the saving of the Gentiles. So, Amos says... This is the way church is supposed to be. It's modeled after the tabernacle of David. When he said that, the Bible says the argument ended, and they all said, amen, that wrapped up the tabernacle of Moses and put it away forever. At that moment, at that moment, it was decided that God himself had already said, I want church to be based on praise. As Christians grow in their relationship with me, it's not to be a lecture-based fellowship. It's to be a praise-based fellowship that they have. Now, pastors and teachers, pastors love to teach. The more churches lean just towards teaching, praise becomes ancillary. Praise is like a warm-up, so you're happy to get the message. Or... Whatever. Well. Um, I don't, you know, we, it's, a, it's a little entertainment before the, before the bruising. You know what I'm talking about? So uh, somehow we have fallen away from the tabernacle of David. But when these men decided what the New Testament church was supposed to be, let me tell you, we've moved a little back. But we need to get back to the tabernacle of David because they said, God revealed through David that even under the era of the law, before Messiah had even laid his life down, grace was available. Yes. God's always wanted grace. Yes. Can you say amen? Yes. <laughs> amen. Woo, praise amen. the Lord. Amen. And they said, they said, praise the church needs to arrange everything around praising God. Yes. Yes. Because that's when God touched people. Yes. That's when God healed. That's when God delivered. And yes, that's when people learned. I remember the old Jesus people days. My wife and I, everything was praising God. You know, we would stop strumming guitars and singing long enough to open the Bible and share a little bit. Then we'd go right back into praising God again. Everything was sandwiched in between praise and worship. It was literally, church was like a solution of praise and worship we were baptized into. So, in case you're thinking, I don't know about all this. I think think church should be lecture-based. Let me let Paul chime in this morning. Out of Colossians 3 and 16, Paul writes, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh Uh-huh, 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 see? We need the Word. We need the Word. That, that, That Word needs to dwell in you richly so we got to pound it in I mean you got to hammer that word in we got to underscore it we need to preach it we need to repeat it then we need to repeat the repeat then we need to repeat the repeating repeater hallelujah we're going to polish that silver till there isn't anything left we're going to get the word in these people praise God let the word of Christ dwell in you richly there's no period there it's a comma. So he's not done thinking. He starts out, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Teaching. Oh, thank God. Teaching. And admonishing. Yes, sir. Admonish. We, these people need admonishing. We need to get up. We need to admonish them with the word. No chastening for the present seems joyous, but grievous afterwards. Afterwards. We'll sing a song and it'll mullify and and yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Yes, bless God, we need to be wise. How do we get that way? Teaching? Admonishing, teaching, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Somebody shout amen. Come on church. Did you hear what Brother Paul just said? How are we going to teach? How are we going to pound the word into them? We're going to sing. We're going to praise God. We're going to sing the word. We're going to get an atmosphere of joy. We're going to get the presence of the Lord moving in this house. And then when we share the word, there's going to be some hearts opened up to hear it. Hallelujah. It's David's tabernacle, not the tabernacle of Moses. It's the tabernacle of David that the New Testament church is based on. Can you say amen? Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. You know, I know we come in on Sunday morning and some of us come through the door looking like we're ready for the tabernacle of Moses. Some of us come through the door looking like we've just come from the tabernacle of Moses. (laughs) Sometimes a preacher gets up and he preaches on hell like he just got back. But the Bible says there was a golden period. God set the mark. He set that mark up called the tabernacle of David for 37 years. He said, hold on, I'll be back. I'm coming back. I'm going to bring my people back. When Jesus came, Jesus was, hallelujah, he was that second David, hallelujah, amen, Amen. glory to God, where the illegitimate can know a purpose of God in their life. I want to encourage you this morning, each and every one of you, I've got more to say in this message, but I'm just going to hold off, I, I feel like I need to stop right now, but let me just, let me encourage you on this one note. Do you feel illegitimate in your own um, social life, in your own personal life, in your own family life, as you look back on your childhood? Are there reasons why you feel like you're you're not the, the Christian that others are? Nobody felt more illegitimate than David. We see David, through the lens of history, as that bright and shining star that he was all that and a bucket of oats. But the truth is, that David was a rejected illegitimate outcast and nothing other than God could change that but David knew how to praise the Lord and God said I love a man who's after my heart I love somebody he would it's a it's amazing to me that David did not let his brothers or his dad make him bitter I know it's an old cliche he didn't get bitter he got better instead of getting angry instead of going and joining a biker gang, and saying, well, I I tell you what, I'm going to raise hell. I'm going to raise hell. If they think that this is what I am, I'm going to show them what a bad boy can do. They think I'm illegitimate. They haven't made a jail that can hold me. He could have gone that way that we all go. He could have dove down into the condemnation, but he didn't. He didn't let what they said about him formally. He said, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Come on, let us exalt his name together. God raised that man up, made him, said, that's the king of Israel. That's your next king. That's your next king, God said. You want God to raise you up? You want God to put you where he wants you to yes. be? Learn to praise him. Yes. Like David. Yes. David fought hell, mankind, condemnation, every adversity to be to get to the place that God brought him. And when he got there, he threw the doors wide open and invited the whole nation to join him. And I'm sure. His brothers were invited as well. Yes. He was a man of mercy, yes. a man of compassion, yes. a man of forgiveness. He was a man that we need today. Yes. He was the kind of Christian we need today. And he presided over the kind of worship and the kind of church that we need today. Can you say amen? amen. Stand with me this morning. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. David knew somebody's going to be encouraged when they find out they can praise the Lord and have a new life. Can you say amen? Amen. Would you just be like those trees, like those blades of grass, like those stars that David wrote about in his psalm? And just lift up your voice and lift up your hands and let's just take a few minutes and just tell God, tell Him, you're His son, you're His daughter. May His precious blood cleanse you. Whatever sins you've forgiven, the blood is flowing right now. Be washed. Be made clean. Every curse word that flowed from your lips, every statement in anger, Every act of rebellion, every statement of defiance, every opportunity to obey God that you blew, may it all be forgiven as you come before the Lord and bring your heart before God. May the blood wash you and cleanse you. May the word you've heard today wash away condemnation. May shackles fall. May the glory and the lifter of your head today put a healthy face on you. Hallelujah. Just give him praise. Hallelujah.